Welcome to Family Business Today, where we feature prominent local and national family business owners. We also talk to top family business experts to discuss relevant topics, including communications, business culture, family relationships, succession, and estate planning values, as well as conflict resolution. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business, I'm your host, Greg Lewis. Our guest today is Barbara Roberts. Barbara is a speaker and writer on all stages of entrepreneurship from startup through growth, exiting, and reinvention. Barbara's work builds on her personal experience as a Wall Street executive, serial entrepreneur, and entrepreneur in residence at Columbia University's Business School and Hofstra University. Trained as an economist, Barbara began her career on Wall Street, where she became one of the first women on the board of Dean Witter. She then became a serial entrepreneur and partnered with two families, transforming their companies for sale or merger as president. FPG International, now part of Getty Images, and Acoustiguide, which is now Espro Acoustiguide. Barbara is the lead author of two Columbia Business School white papers, Life After an Exit, How Entrepreneurs Transition to the Next Stage, and The Owner's Journey, Experiences Shared and Lessons Learned from Entrepreneurs Who Successfully Sold or Transferred Their Businesses to Family Members. In addition to her work as both a speaker and an author, Barbara serves as a consultant, coach, and board member for privately held companies. She lives and works in Sag Harbor and New York, New York. Well, good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Greg. Great to be with you today. Well, I'm so glad that you could join me this morning for this edition of Family Business Today. I've really been looking forward to our interview to learn more about your experience in running two family businesses and preparing them for a successful transition. We're also going to discuss the impact the current crisis is having on family business owners and your thoughts on what the future looks like. So let's get started. As an entrepreneur, you're successfully built, transformed, and sold two family-owned businesses. Tell us about your experience running those two companies and ultimately selling them. Great. Well, thank you, Greg, again for having me. And uh, just, I know you shared a little bit about my background, but just real quick, I on um, sort of my chapters and where these uh, companies fit and how they fit in the work and why I'm on your call today. Great. Um, as, as you've just explained, my first career was on Wall Street, um, where I began to work with entrepreneurs when they were um, doing IPOs or preparing for a sale. Uh, the second chapter of my life, I built and sold actually three family uh, businesses. Okay. One of them, which I'll talk about in a second, ended up in bankruptcy. So I'm only t- I don't usually talk about that one, but since we are uh, talking to family business owners on all the different things that can That's happen, right. I thought I'd include something <laughs> on that. Right? Sure, okay. sure. It and happens. then um, for the. For the last 10 to 12 years, actually, since I sold my last company, I have been entrepreneur in residence at both Hofstra and Columbia University. And so my entire life has been about uh, waking up every day to see how I can help women get their fair share of the economic pie and most importantly, help people start, grow and successfully sell um, companies so that we can innovate, create new jobs and create new wealth. So. Um, I know that this middle chapter of when I was running family businesses probably is of great interest um, to your audience. So just quickly to highlight those three experiences, 
um, as I shared, uh, I worked on Wall Street, and the way I transferred into running companies is actually my ex-husband hired me to um, what we met while I was at Wall Street, and I decided to leave because we were engaged, and he actually then hired me to help him transform his company. His company was the only manufacturer of those crazy white punch cards that went into IBM mainframe oh, oh. computers, oh, wow. okay? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. plastic yeah. for a family business to do something that they virtually have a monopoly, yeah. but oh my, there's uh, a change coming. Um, unfortunately, he did not take an offer to sell at his peak. And unfortunately, he did not pivot fast enough to the changing uh, technology. So I actually ended up um, continuing to run that company through uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy liquidity. Um, Sir James Goldsmith was involved. That's a whole story unto itself. But that actually is where I got my PhD in how to run a business. <laughs> going through, and again, a message is going through a bad time can be your, your main learning. Um, yeah. And then after that, um, I actually, by almost, it's by my life, what happened was um, a woman inherited a stock photography company from her father who very unexpectedly died of a heart attack. And so it was his wife and her four daughters, so five women, inherited a archive of photographs and file cabinets uh, about 1990. Um, It was... Again, a time of tremendous change, Um, and basically I led that and ended up transforming it from an analog to a digital company. We created the first technology that put photos and CDs in the Internet, and most important, we were recognized as the first photo agency that really photographed all people. In 1990, only white people were in commercial photography, and we had this revolutionary idea that um, maybe we should be photographing all backgrounds, all types of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we won tons of great awards, and I ended up having Bill Gates personally and Mark Getty personally bid on that company. Another story of my hours um, <laughs> negotiating with Bill Gates, but we ended up selling that company in 1997. It was a public auction uh, professionally run by an investment banker, and we sold that company for $60 million in 1997. It's now part of Getty Images. So that's a story. Oh, well, well, and we then all know the, about Getty and Images. Then my, okay, and, we, and also working, of course, as the non-family member with four sisters and a widow is another story. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, And then my last, uh, my other um, entrepreneur kind of family uh, situation is Acoustiguide, which was an audio tour company, again, that had been started 30 or 40 years before I came in. Um, And when people love tape recorders through museums to learn about art, and I was hired by a very prominent Chinese-American who had left Shanghai in 1949, and he actually bought this company as a wedding present for his son-in-law to run. It didn't work out, and so I came in to, again, transform that company from an analog tape recorder business to the kind of technology that you now see in museums and historic sites, and that company 
I navigated to uh, be merged into the Israeli company that um, manufactured our equipment. So been around um, helping family businesses really reinvent themselves, uh, been through some very interesting uh, exit things. So happy to share that experience as we go forward here. Oh, that's awesome. Well, wow, what an experience uh, that you've that you've had. Well, let's 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 step back just a little bit and uh, discuss this exiting uh, of a business a little more broadly because you certainly have some great experiences and stories about that. But tell us what's at stake for business owners as they consider their options for an exit. Yeah, you know, if all that experience, even though I knew I. It, when I was hired by these families, it, even then, it was not intentional of what the exit should be. And even when I start teach startup labs and I weekends and work with entrepreneurs coming out of Columbia and Hofstra University, one of my big messages is that every business owner, every entrepreneur should really understand that there are 10 things that can eventually happen to your company and and to have some thought on which of these you want to happen is really important because it makes you run a business a different way. So just to quickly go through those 10 things and how it would change your strategy, let me just quickly go through it. Um, One, you can IPO, you can do initial Mm -hmm. public offering. Well, if that's what you want to do, then you have to get governance in place. You have to have phenomenally sophisticated accounting because you're going to have to do public reporting on your numbers. Uh, and you are probably going to build, have to build a team that has incredible credentials, is impressive, and you know it's all about team building. And you also are going to have to have a strategy of extraordinary growth at all costs. But then you also could sell outright to a financial buyer as a second option or a strategic buyer as a third option. Well, if you are planning to sell to a financial buyer, again, you've got to be totally focused on building incredible growth and amazing numbers and really building the proof. And your timing has to be right also that you are selling at a moment that the financial buyer still can really make money or you have to find a financial buyer who's doing a roll-up. A strategic buyer, which is actually very, very common as what happens to privately held companies, that is probably somebody that you know now. Uh, It could be a competitor. It could be someone in your value change. It's someone who's buying you to help them with a strategy. So that tells you that you have to have a very good public persona. You have to have great relationships and a great reputation in your industry. But then your other options is you can sell it to employees. Um, That means you have to have a very open system of sharing numbers with all your employees so they understand how to run the business. And And also, um, it means having a culture right from the beginning that you're all uh, in this together. You can sell it to your management. You can sell it to a partner. And, of course, you can transfer to a family member, which many entrepreneurs don't consciously think about as an option when they begin. And, again, if that's a plan for you, then you've got to start thinking about that even when your children are as young as five or six years old. 
Um, and then, of course, you could hire someone to run your company and stay at home. But And then your other two options, if you don't do great planning, is that you could be forced to liquidate or you could go into bankruptcy. So um, I just really love to remind people that there are all those options, no matter what generation of family business is, all of those are still on the table for you. And then the other thing that I always like to talk about is that there's a difference between estate planning, succession planning, and exit planning. And to at least do some thinking on each of those, always, at least once a year, is so important. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just think about if something happened to you, what would happen from an estate point of view, an exit point of view, and a succession point of view. Very good. Very good. Yeah, there's lots of options. There's not just one way to do things, uh, uh, whether it's to sell the business or transition it to your, to your, to the next generation. So thanks for sharing all those. Well, you know, you were the non-family CEO of two family-owned businesses, and and in my experience, experience working with family business, that's not really unusual. However there are some unique challenges that go along with being uh, a non-family member CEO of a family-owned business. So if you could tell us some of the unique challenges of planning of a family-owned business through the generations uh, that you've experienced, I would appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's so much literature now. First of all, it's amazing in the last 10 years, even particularly in the last five years, how much literature and help there is for people building privately held companies. Um, there really was a dearth if you go further than 10 years ago. Um, so one, um, I think we all know that a couple of key points is that you have to wear different hats, that there's um, family, there's family, non-family members, there's people who are shareholders, non-shareholders, there are people who have the uh, the management decisions or, or involved with board and whatever. So there's the hat thing is very important. But one thing that I have learned from participating in many family businesses and organizing very family mem um, meetings is I don't think there's enough uh, consciousness about how each generation has a totally different challenges uh, and different kind of things that they have to start thinking about. I mean, certainly the founder transferring to um, the next generation, it's a small group of people. It's people that possibly everyone grew up in a time of not great wealth Mm -hmm. um, that they all were kind of in this together. And so you have that as a challenge, which I always talk about, that going from founder to next gen is their immigrants to the land of wealth. Um, it, I think that's a great term um, mm -hmm. that is you know, circulated in the community that most people who build companies do not grow up with a lot of wealth. Many times it's, it's people who came to this country with very little, people who grew up in this country with very little, maybe middle class, but still most wealth is self-made. So that is a real challenge um, to recognize that it's a, an identity beyond just the company. You ha you're learning how to be a responsible person of wealth. The second gen to the third gen, oftentimes that person has had the opportunities of wealth, going to better schools, maybe having gone to 
get advanced degrees, having more opportunities, being more sophisticated on uh, how or more process driven on how the company could join. So that's the big challenge. Then when you get, of course, into the third and fourth generation, you can potentially be talking about tons of people who barely know each other. And so the whole challenge of really having things in writing, having a governance system, having uh, processes and rules about how people are paid or can be employed in the company, uh, systems on dividends and buying out stock becomes the real challenge. But at the end of the day, the most important thing at all these stages is communication and managing expectations. Um, Those, I think, are absolutely Hmm. just at the end of the day, the two things that are most important in successfully navigating this craziness of transferring wealth, uh, either liquid wealth or business wealth through multi-generations. Very good. Very good. Wow. Managing expectations. That's, that is uh, something. Yeah, I, I often, I often get invited to go into companies, particularly I have to give a shout out because as one can imagine is that this has been a time that I see more women uh, family members being given the opportunity to step forward in leadership. And I have to say, I started doing this kind of work with family businesses 10 years ago. And oftentimes, everyone in the family knew the daughter was the best to do this. But it tend, <laughs> oftentimes, there was a male founder who just absolutely couldn't see it. Um, it's uh, you know, it's it, and again, that's expectations on both sides. The founder or the the leader in charge has an expectation of of children or, or um, nieces and nephews. Um, not coming or coming into the business. And of course, those people also have their own dreams. And you have to have some process that people can truly share what they would like to do. And then you really have to be objective of whether or not they have the skills or you know, back invest in them, invest in them to get the skills so they can contribute correctly Mm. to the business. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Manage expectations. That's a, a great, great word. So, well, I think top of mind for for uh, family uh, business owners I talk to is really the current crisis uh, that we're going through here, not only in the United States but around the world. You recently wrote an article about the current crisis. What are your thoughts on the impact of the pandemic, and why is the word crisis not an adequate word to use? Oh, this is one of my favorite topics. So uh, I am based in New York, and March 15th is the date and uh, you know, that we will all never forget as New Yorkers that started this. But I also had run a business uh, in New York through 9-11, and I also ran a business um, in New York through the 2008 meltdowns, um, and also I'm quite well known in New York for public speaking and like trying to help people figure out what's happening. So that first week in March, I was very quickly invited to do Zoom calls and webinars and things, sharing with people what I had learned running my company through the crisis of 9-11 and the 2008 meltdown. And I started talking at the very first call. I had all these notes about what I had learned. And halfway through the call, 
it, I just realized it was totally irrelevant <laughs> that and it hit me that what we were going through was not a crisis. It was chaos. And I kept starting, I started thinking about this, that we, there's a lot about crisis management. Uh, and, but we were, this was chaos management and it's different. A crisis, looking at 9-11, 2008, we, there was a point in time that we knew the worst was over on what immediately really caused the problem. Um, we also were able to hold all of our relatives, go out to dinner, listen to music. Our children could go to school within, even in New York within a week of the 9-11 disaster. We knew there was a point in time that we kind of had hit the bottom of the worst, and now we could start kind of putting the pieces together. We are in chaos. Every aspect of life has been disrupted. It is never going to go back to the way it was. Everything, nothing from the past is really relevant, but the most incredible, and as an entrepreneur, we love this because there are unlimited opportunities in this chaos. But if you're running a business, it also means that I think this is a time that everyone needs to kind of start understanding what makes an entrepreneur, what is innovation. Innovation. So be willing to change. Well, you're, you're certainly of extremely optimistic, Barbara. And, and uh, I agree with you that business owners can not only survive, but thrive during this chaotic time. But what, why do you why do you say that? What advice do you have to business owners? So continuing with the, my conversations and my thinking since March fifteenth to today, um, my next thing that I started talking about is that we were going to go through chapters. And so if we look back, I think the first chapter back in March and April, at least for New Yorkers, and may have been a little bit later for people in other areas of the world and country is it was about survival. You look to see how much money you had. You looked at your leases. You looked to see if what people you absolutely needed. Um, the second stage, which we saw over the summer, was that you really tried to figure out how to do something, how to keep your business going in some ways. Some About 30% of the peop the clients I work with, actually, their, their businesses, and some of them exploded because they actually were doing things that people very much even needed more. I would say maybe 10 to 15% of the businesses, particularly in the entertainment restaurant space, are certainly um, suffering, but those who really kind of pivoted um, survived. And now as we come out of 2020 into 21, I am seeing that those people who really got back to the problem that they had to solve and understood what really was the purpose of their business, they are doing okay or doing very well. So the first thing to know about entrepreneurs is that entrepreneurs are not in love with the solution. They are passionately in love with solving the problem. Mm -hmm. So 
any business owners at this time coming into 2021 should be asking themselves, what is the mission for themselves and their company? What is the problem that you have to solve? Don't give up. You know, forget about how you've been solving it. Go back and think and imagine that you're restarting your company. The second thing that we also know now about entrepreneurship and innovation is one person alone in a office in front of a laptop writing a business plan does not start a company. The way you get a solution to your problem is you have to get out, talk to your people. So my second message to all business owners is this is a time that you should be hugging your customer. It's a time to be asking them how their world changed, what they need from you, how can you help them, how are they doing. You start that, you talk to enough people, you will find the answer to what you have to do. And that is what innovation is. There's this myth about entrepreneurs, this myth about innovation that we secretly come up with these amazing solutions. But if I've studied hundreds of successful entrepreneurs at all stages, and the secret is this obsession to solve a problem, this bias to action, this willingness to talk and listen to anyone who's affected by the problem. And then the last thing I would say is you cannot be an innovator if you're obsessed about being perfect or you're obsessed about failure. You cannot be the first person to do something uh, and get it perfectly correct the first time. And that is, I think, the difference of the difference between entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm very excited about this time because I think every human being on the planet has had to innovate. And so I just, even if this doesn't sound comfortable to some of your listeners, think about your own life. You have been an entrepreneur. You already have learned some of these principles that I'm talking about. You are faced with problems, probably with your family or company, uh, with customers. And I know if you solve them, you only did it by talking with other people, trying a few things and moving forward. And that, again, is the exact same attitude that I believe every business owner needs right now to concentrate on and to think about is you know how do you innovate what are the problem how is the problems change how is the world for your customer or client changed and what do you do as we come out of this very good innovation innovate innovate yes. innovate <laughs> well you've you've talked about it a little bit but uh, just from your uh, vision what are some of the big changes and trends that you see emerging uh, from this chaotic time we're in um, certainly, of course, the virtual everything is the biggest yeah. change. Yeah. Um, you know, virtual shopping, virtual sports, virtual entertainment, healthcare, um, how you sell. I think a big change, the big one of the biggest challenges right now is how to connect with your customers, how to find um, the role of social media, social marketing. That's huge. I, I imagine there's, you know, ch huge changes in real estate coming, um, you know, even homes now uh, are thinking maybe you need a private office for everyone in your home or a private workspace, <laughs> a whole different way of thinking yeah. about how a home should be constructed. 
certainly commercial real estate, even you know the future of cities. Right now, um, those of us who love cities, we love it be- for the diversity and the intensity that we're all on top of each other. Um, there's been a subtle thing here of you know just wonder you know questioning whether um, this intensity really is was so great. But again, as an optimist and with the vaccines coming, I am still a very big believer that there's nothing better than um, city life. Um, I think the fear of touching is going to last at least for another year. But I think it's some real positives, uh, tremendous care about health, care about families. I think tremendous respect now for teachers and healthcare workers. I also am seeing a real interest in B Corps and benefit corporations and triple bottom line. A lot of conversation now that business is about people, profit, and the planet. And I have to also share that one of my new ideas this week that I'm beginning to feel very strongly about now is we at least have some hope with the vaccine coming. And there's been so much so many documentaries about the Spanish flu, which of course happened in 1918. We have to remember that the Roaring Twenties came directly out of and because of the Spanish flu. So, being my ultimate crazy optimistic self, I one of my predictions that I'm making this week is that within 18 to two years, about a year after the vaccines really start, we could be in a most incredible time of entertainment, uh, going out, uh, human kind of creativity. Um, I think this could be an amazingly crazy, positive, fun time as we come out of this, because I think that's all what we want next. (laughs) Oh, I love you. I love your positive (laughs) attitude and 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 certainly uh, great uh, thoughts on some of the changes and trends that we're going to be seeing coming. Well, you've you've already mentioned and, and we know that you're very passionate about female entrepreneurship. Can you share your thoughts on the role that women will be playing as we navigate the pandemic and chaos? Oh, well, I, I just, uh, you know, certain, I think I always like to put the whole um, women's economic uh, revolution like a little bit in context because I think people forget. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'd like to remind people that women who were born in the United States or who came to the United States since World War II. We are literally the first women in the entire history of mankind to have the financial rights, the educational rights, the legal rights, the rights to sports programs, and some government and institutional support to create our own opportunities and wealth. We are the first generation ever Hmm. to have this. We also have to remember that it actually took a congressional act in 1989 to make it illegal for a bank to require a man's signature when a woman wanted a commercial loan. Mm. We did have the right to get private loans like starting in the 70s, but a woman could not get a commercial. It was okay for a bank to require a woman to have a man's signature (laughs) to get a loan for commercial interest up until 1989. So it is only 30 years that we have had the true 
Um, it's not actually, uh, and there's some arguments. It's not even true. I, I have even found entrepreneur women in the last couple of years still having finding that bankers have asked them to have their husband sign leases and whatever against the law, but it's still happening. So I am, I think it was happening. It took time for all this to come together. Um, And certainly it was already before the pandemic um, sort of exploding. But I think I certainly have seen a tremendous, even bigger increase in women's entrepreneurship um, particularly as people were more had to stay at home and kind of had to think about their lives coming out of this and their real dreams. So um, I also think that the, I'm going to be kind of uh, profiling here that I think women <laughs> oftentimes have a style of leadership that are, is more collaborative, um, more truly interested in getting feedback from people. Um, and really are also tend to be a little bit more comfortable running teams of diversity. And I think that kind of intrinsic kind of ability to do that is certainly the kind of leadership that we um, are looking for as we come out of this. And I I think we certainly are seeing that. I mean, it's mind-boggling, of course, having Norma Kamala Harris, Kamala is a, a, a clothing designer. Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. um, you know, elected to the vice presidency. Right. Of course, is is you know the the, the beacon of what has been happening. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm very again. Um, I actually, this is one thing that I wasn't very optimistic about. Um, even two years ago, I felt that um, a lot of things were going a little bit backwards for women. Um, but coming out of this, I think they're going forward, but the only, I guess, caveat that I would, that bothers me still a little bit is certainly there's so much evidence that women have many women with, particularly with children have had, you know, at least 30 hours more work put on them through the pandemic Mm -hmm. in the last nine months. And there's been a little bit of evidence that some women uh, kind of stepped out of the workforce because they were overwhelmed by this extra responsibility. Um, Hopefully they will come back. But there also is some evidence that men stepped out uh, because of this. Um, You know, so it's I think we're all kind of rethinking what our roles are going to be and what our priorities are as we come out of this. But I'm very optimistic about what the opening of roles for women and minorities and everyone as we go into the 2021. No, oh, thank you for your optimism. Uh, <laughs> that's that that is awesome. Um, you know, in my in my uh, conversations with family business owners uh, and especially with uh, founders, uh, their business really represents more than simply the place they work. Uh, I know you coach a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, business owners. How do you guide them towards the next chapter after exiting the business? I know you said that was a challenge for you. Uh, what? How do you guide them? Yeah, I I actually wrote a I've written uh, actually four white papers now on different stages of growth and preparing for a sale and how to create value. But my very first white paper I wrote was 12 years ago. It was Life After an Exit, the Columbia Business School white paper. And I studied 20 entrepreneurs who had sold businesses for $10 million to a $1 billion. After I sold my business, I had businesses, I had a 
very difficult time. Uh, I would say I almost went into a clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I found no one I could talk to. Um, you know, you walk out with this, you know, this reasonable amount of money, um, and you, you, you know, people are certainly are sympathetic if someone inherited mm-hmm. a great deal of money because someone they love died. Uh, there is a sympathy for that person, but the public was not sympathetic uh, to someone who is like a little bit very down and has millions of dollars newfound. So I got very interested. I thought this was a, a girl thing or whatever, and I spent three years studying the art of renewal and transition. And when I did this white paper um, of the 20 people I interviewed, about four of them were women, but 16 were men. And very quickly, all the men said to me, Barbara, I am so happy to talk to you. Nobody ever let me express in any way what I talked of, what I felt. I felt I sold my baby. I wish I hadn't sold my company. It was the worst three or four years of my life. So I came to realize that this was universal. And what that led me to really understand, and I think even, again, I'll put it in the COVID context for all of us, all of us have gone through what an entrepreneur goes through in a bigger way when we were told that day that we couldn't go to work or we couldn't go do what we usually do. And we had incredible sense of dislocation. Many people are suffering from a depression because of this inability to go into their places of work. So what does work give us? It gives us our purpose. It gives us our way for organizing our time, and it gives us a community of people. And again, the dislocation of not being able to go to an office during COVID, I'm sure many of your listeners recognize even if they're not running a company that this was very disturbing to them but if you think of an entrepreneur all three of these things are 24 7 are in extreme mm-hmm. an entrepreneur's business is purpose it's totally what they do with their time and most entrepreneurs only are close to people who are part of their company as they're going through this craziness so and to prepare for a sale, it's to really think about this. What is going to be your purpose on the other side? How are you going to organize your time? And what is your purpose? But the two other things that I mentioned earlier that I would like to come back to is, secondly, when an entrepreneur sells a company, it not only affects them, it affects the identity of everyone in their families. Mm. Um, If children have seen their dad working 24-7 on a company or their mom and all of a sudden that person is home and not going to work, they are very disoriented. They think that, you know, that they're they're going on welfare or something uh, because of the image that if somebody's not working, there's something not uh, there's something drastically wrong. Um, Also, when the person who was running the company comes back into the family, there's often a lot of um, commotions about what values they're going to continue to keep with the new money. Mm -hmm. Are they going to continue to act the way they were or are they going to be rich people of Mm -hmm. a good uh, reputation or bad? Mm -hmm. And you can have really conflicting things happen between spouses that one wants to keep the lifestyle more like it was and the other 
really wants to step into a more flamboyant lifestyle. So um, I also, as I mentioned before, I love the idea of the an immigrant to the land of wealth, that after you sell a company, you also have the identity crisis of deciding who you trust, what your mm-hmm. values are, and who you're going to be with that new money. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. You're, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's like winning the lottery, only you had to work real hard <laughs> to get it. And what are you going to do now with the new wealth? Well, some of our listeners uh, may be saying, Barbara, it is going to be a long way off before I exit. What are a few things that they should do now to better prepare themselves for that eventual exit? Well, again, first, as I mentioned, is to really understand your 10 options. Um, second, that you, I think every even when I um, am teaching startups, uh, even at Columbia or Hofstra, I always say that from the very first moment that you're generating revenues or you're hiring another person, you have an obligation to at least have a will in place and a financial mm-hmm. power of attorney. Sale is not your only exit. Something can happen to you. And certainly during this time of COVID, um, one can imagine that if you had to be put on an incubator or whatever, and you did not have a financial power of attorney, it could take six months in many states before somebody could get the legal right to keep your business going. So one of my biggest messages is exit isn't all about consciousness on the downside. It can be, as we saw, COVID-type horrible thing. Also, you could have somebody walk in the door and offer you a very large sum of money because you are doing something very well. So the other thing that I always recommend to uh, business owners at any stage is to download what's known as a due diligence list. This is the documents. These are the questions that anyone will be asking if they want to buy your company. Mm-hmm. Right from the beginning, I recommend business owners start putting their company files in these kind of files and mm-hmm. reading those questions and thinking about clauses and contracts. Um, is it better to have a clause in the contract that this contract continues on a sale? Um, That's the way you keep value. Leases, sometimes you want a lease that could be very easy to get out of if someone came in and bought it. I think also COVID showed us that, that you probably want flexibility. So thinking about both the surprise, super good thing that could happen to you, the horrible, possible bad thing is also part of thinking ahead uh, for financial planning. And I think, you know, again, The 10 options are out there, but also to be conscious about whether how you're creating value um, to read maybe about what it is that will make your company uh, valuable. And I always just suggest right off the bat, it should be one of the three B's. You should be the best. You should be the boldest. You should be the broadest. And I'm having a senior moment on the fourth one. Best, uh, biggest 
biggest, biggest, right? I didn't say biggest. Yeah, biggest. Okay, best, biggest, boldest, or broadest. Um, so obviously best and biggest is clear. Boldest means that you're innovative, and broadest would mean that you have the most uh, spread geography or the biggest footprint. If you think of yourself, you will create value if you concentrate on one of those four Bs. Very good. The four Bs. Awesome. Well, Barbara, we're sort of coming to the end of our time together. Uh, 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 What are some closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, I think we really did a good job here. I think we did. I think, again, just repeating kind of what I just said, think of all your options, succession, exit, estate, uh, planning is different. Good things happen, bad things happen. Always be ready for them. Uh, this is a family business uh, uh, focus of this podcast, so managing expectations, uh, communicating honestly and openly is the secret to keeping right. uh, families together as a business or in any context. Um, and then the last thing is, I again, wanted to share, I have written four white papers, uh, Life After an Exit, about uh, preparing and going through an exit, the owner's journey. This is focuses particularly for baby boomers, uh, making the choice of whether or not you think your company is best in the hands of next gens or selling it, really good tips on how to navigate that. Um, I've also written a, a white paper sponsored by Bank of America, which is called The Women's Entrepreneur Journey. Uh, this I wrote about two years ago that really talks about uh, the different way that women build companies and our different values. And then for UBS, which is how I think I met you, Greg. That's right. Um, I wrote a, a white paper recently called Flight Pass, which is on the long journey of an entrepreneur and it focuses on entrepreneurs that really took their skills into new domains after they sold a business. So they went into government or academia or started a not-for-profit with great impact. So if anyone is interested in um, getting those, um, I think you're going to share the details on that. I will be doing that shortly. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for being our guest on Family Business Day. I know that I got a lot out of it, and I know that our listeners uh, got a lot, a lot out of it too. So thanks again for being my guest today. You're so welcome, Greg. It was a real joy to talk to you. I hope I, and something in here is helpful to each of your listeners. Thank you. To receive a free copy of Barbara Roberts' Columbia University Business School White Papers, Life After an Exit, How Entrepreneurs Transition to the Next Stage, and The Owner's Journey, Experiences Shared and Lessons Learned from Entrepreneurs Who Successfully Sold or Transferred Their Business to Family Members, connect with Barbara Roberts' Columbia University on LinkedIn. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for the Family Business Day podcast. Brought to you by the Tennessee Center for Family Business located in Nashville, Tennessee, our passion is to help families create a positive environment where their family thrives, their business performs, and working together create a lasting family legacy. Whether you're a business owner looking to grow your family business or you're wanting to prepare to someday sell or transition the business to the next generation, check out our free resources on our website at www.tncfb.com. 
If you want to talk to a family business consultant, schedule a 30-minute no-cost call about your specific family business issues by sending us email to info at tncfb.com. If you want to talk, we'll listen. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.